0: So watching uh, the movie Hancock this week, it brought to mind for me um, a band that I used to love when I was in my 80s, 1980s punk phase called The Minutemen. It's called, a little ironically, maybe partying will help. The lyrics go, as I look out over this beautiful land, I can't help but realize that I am alone. 17 years old, you know, I felt alone. Why am I able to waste my energy to notice life being so beautiful? Maybe partying will help. Now, in the song, it clearly doesn't. And Hancock can relate to this. He is the world's first 12-step superhero. He is alienated, isolated, and alone. But yet he's still, tenuously, a hero. In the beginning of the movie, how many of you have seen it, by the way? Can I see a show of hands? Okay, that's a fairly good uh, percentage. If you remember that scene in the beginning of the movie when he's helping uh, the cops, well, not quite helping them, he's actually also ripping up millions of dollars of L.A. Freeway, Um, he's trying to get some bank robbers who are trying to get away with some loot, and he lifts their car up, and they're screaming by the end of the scene, put us down, put us down, and he says, I'm good at down. I'm good at down. That's not about them. It's about himself. He is a person, in this case a hero, near his bottom. Now the plot is relatively straightforward and there's one twist that I won't entirely, won't entirely give away to you. There are three main characters. There is Hancock, who's the alcoholic bum of a superhero, and there's Ray, who's the naturally very, very hopeful, upbeat PR agent whose life is saved by Ray on the train tracks one day. And he is sort of the sunshine to Hancock's cloudy day. And he wants to rehab. He wants to rehab the hero's image. And then there's one final third character. It's Mary, who's Ray's wife. And the minute she and Hancock meet, that you can tell there's a connection between them. Now, you can't quite tell whether she's the storm front coming up a cloud on the horizon for Hancock or whether she is the ray of light that he's been waiting for his entire life. And, in fact, she's both. She holds the key To Hancock's identity. And really the question at the heart of the movie is this while you're watching it. The question is this. Why does Hancock still act the role of hero at all? Why does he even bother? Because he does so, so joylessly, so resentfully. If he didn't want to do it, why would he even bother in the first place? See, this is the issue with Hancock. He knows only what he can do, but he has no idea who he is. He only knows what he is capable of, but he has no sense of core, deep identity. And until that point, and that's really what the movie's about, he will live in limbo. He lives this kind of half inhabited life, not entirely out of it enough to be completely disengaged and not entirely in inhabiting his life enough to share his gifts joyfully. Now, if you've seen the movie *Goodwill Hunting, if you remember that from a number of years ago, it's kind of like that character, that genius character who was hiding out from his gifts, but still chose, not at all by accident, to clean the floors at MIT, where someday his gifts would be discovered. Hancock seems to have this kind of duplicitous relationship with his gifts. He lies to himself about what he's really about, and yet he cannot stop himself. So he shows up, but he does it with anger and he does it without joy. Now, this movie, as we just saw, really is made for our age. Those clips are from YouTube, and so his misdeeds are cast all throughout the Internet, and really because it's starring the biggest, the single biggest movie star there is right now, Will Smith. It's kind of a meta-commentary on what celebrity means in our age, about the uneasy relationship that we have with our heroes, about how we love and enjoy their gifts, and yet the Germans have the perfect word for it, schadenfreude. We love, we revel as a country. And seeing them fall. And so there's a scene in which that it completely mimics the quarterback who's been caught, you know, cheating around on his wife or the actress, the megawatt actress who's got her six DUI where Hancock goes to jail, he says, to make amends for the millions of dollars of damage that he's done. But he gets up in front of the cameras and he reads this scripted thing that's been written for him by Ray and he does it without any pretense of authenticity. He does it with resentment. He does it without any sense that you get. He is really, truly sorry for what he has done. Completely inauthentic, you see, because all he can do is have the feats of heroism, but he cannot perform them as if they were a gift. Because what transforms a gift, what transforms truly something into a gift from being a mere talent or a mere skill is intention. It's how much we intention we bring to the act. To use a Marxist term, Hancock is entirely alienated from his labor. And even more, he is alienated from his own heart. No reward, no recognition, no amount of external validation that he doesn't even want anyway, as we can see in that scene, will ever, ever give him what he really yearns for. And I have to tell you, this part of the movie caught me absolutely flush. Just hit me right here and right here. It reminded me of a number of years ago from a colleague who since has left this life, but not my heart. Now he got sober many, many years before I got sober, and it was in the first couple of years of my ministry, and he was asking me, how you doing? How you doing? You ever have a mentor like this, the kind of person when they ask a question, they already know the answer that you're going to give, and they see right through you? And so sometimes we hide from people like that because, you know, sometimes it can hurt to be that transparent, to be that vulnerable. And I started running off this great list of all these initiatives I was doing in my first year of ministry and all these things I was doing. He said, cut it out. Well, actually, he said something a little bit saltier than that, which I won't repeat right here. He said, how are you doing? And I knew what his question was about. And I grew silent. Because even as much as I was growing in my professional identity, I was not growing in here. He said to me something that resonates to this day and was one of the primary influences when I finally decided to clean up my life. He said, you cannot do this job without joy. You cannot do this job without joy. You will burn out. You will, as he made the joke, you will become toast. You will dry out. I have to tell you, that stayed with me. And what spurred my sobriety more than anything else was this. It was this thing. It was not the fear that my maladroit exploits would be caught on YouTube. It was not the fear, although it could have become reality, that I was going to run my car into a pole one day. It was this. It was not the fear. It was the absolute knowledge that I knew what my life would turn out to be. that I would continue to live a life of quiet desperation alienated in my own heart from my gifts, never fully possessing my life, never fully present, and that my life, if I would look back on it someday, would be a catalog of risks untaken and of the investments placed in me that were unrealized. It was, I knew, a vision and a scary one of acting the days rather than, Thoreau said, seizing them. Living from the outside in, not the inside out. It's the same way that Hancock, in many ways, is there, but not there. Not inhabiting his life. Hiding from his life in plain sight. See, Hancock has all the trappings of superherodom, but he doesn't have any of the meaning. Like Batman has his Batcave and Superman has his Fortress of Solitude. Well, Hancock has his place where he goes. It's a double-wide trailer away from everything, up on a cliff, where he sits and he drinks and he stews and he's in pain. Now, other superheroes have that place of reflection, of retreat. But for Hancock, it's the place where despair is most great, where self-loathing is most great. Now, Batman, for example, he bears the scars of his parents' murder years before, if you know that story. But he also has Alfred, his butler, who really, really knows him. Superman knows that exposed to kryptonite, he will die. But if you remember the 1977 version of that story, it begins with Superman learning who he is when he arrives on Earth. He knows where he comes from. He knows that even as he is different, he is grounded. But Hancock is just a blank, just a blank, a life unanswered and unasked. He bears all the signs of what one of my favorite professors that i ever studied with calls the anxiety of being. Not the anxiety of non-being because he can't non-be. He is immortal. He is invulnerable. Nothing physical can happen to him that will cause him any harm. Except one thing, I'm not going to give that part away. But he has instead the anxiety of being. He has the fear of his own light He has the fear of his own goodness. He has the fear of actually being responsible for the gifts that this universe has placed into his hands. Now, we who are not superheroes, we who are mortal, we sometimes think in some ways that I think Hancock was thinking. We think that, well, someday when I am secure enough, someday when I am in good enough health, someday when I am wealthy enough, someday... Someday, someday, then there will no longer be that anxiety, that fear of non-being. But still we are nagged by pain or doubt or at our most extreme self-loathing because this is not the fear of not existing. It's the fear of really existing, of actually being there, of inhabiting our lives. It is the fear of our own light. It is the fear of our own life. Perhaps because the fear is if we actually share who we are, if we actually put it on the line, risk who we are, fully show up, are fully present, what happens if it's not enough? What happens if it doesn't suffice? Then for some of us, that old shame kicks in, that old sense that truly we are not enough and that our very essence, our life will found to be wanting. For some, it is that risk of saying, you know what, if I do lay it all out there and I come up short... What will be left of me? And so behind that mask of indifference that we can wear sometimes lies that truer face of vulnerability. And it exists in that refusal to give ourselves over because we fear our own incompleteness. And what Hancock shows in the movie is that as long as we remain isolated individuals, as long as we are lonely, this is a very legitimate fear. But real heroics the kind that we can have, those of us who are not superheroes, the kind of real heroics work in the opposite direction. These are the real heroics of letting life all the way in, letting it touch us, letting us be touched by it. There's an old story that's told from the Jewish tradition about a rabbi whose gift it was with his people every week to hear their confessions, their hurts, their habits, their hang-ups, and just to have them come into his office and pour their hearts out. Well, one day there was a line outside the rabbi's door, and it grew longer and longer and longer because the rabbi was not taking any more people in to see that day. And finally, one of his acolytes went in, and he saw the rabbi lick this with his head in his hands and weeping, and he wouldn't talk about it. He said, call a fast, call a fast for the community because I need their prayers. I need their thoughts right now. after 24 hours had passed and the rabbi had returned to himself, finally one of his acolytes said, we were so worried about you. What happened? He said, I heard a confession from one of you today that so bothered me. And the acolyte thought it must have been truly something horrible that this person had done. And he asked the rabbi that question. The rabbi said, that's not what it was. The horrible thing was that what this person had told me I could not share. And I knew there was some part of me that was refusing to identify with this person's story. And this was me blocking my own sense of connecting with who this person was. See, this is where that condescending pity Sometimes that we have, oh, I understand, I get it. And sometimes we even say, oh, it's not so bad. See, that's what the rabbi was afraid of, that he had mere pity for this person rather than on the deepest level with who this person was, identification. When we can take this risk of recognizing the identity of life with life, then we can say it is no longer pity that we share with each other, but true compassion, We can recognize whatever another person's story is. Some part of it is our story as well, too. But this only starts when we let life in. It is the truest hero's journey. That the hero is not ultimately invulnerable. That he or she understands the meaning of the old phrase, the old adage to whom much is given, much is expected. I know many of you have heard this before. And I think the way we often understand that is in this fashion. Too much is given, much is expected. So you don't hoard too much away from other people who don't have much at all. That is an understanding of it, and it's a good thing to understand. But there's even a deeper meaning. It is this. To whom much is given, much is expected, is actually for the benefit to whom much is given. Because if we do not recognize our connection back into life with our gifts, we will become isolated We will become unto ourselves, we will think, and we will pull back to whom much is given, much is expected, is a reminder that we are intended to share our gifts. For power without relationship is a tragedy. Think if any of you have seen the movie, The Oddly Sympathetic Rendering of Richard Nixon's Life by Oliver Stone. He turns him into a tragic figure. At the end, Richard Nixon, and all he's done, he is like a child. Weeping to his wife, I am so afraid of the darkness because he knows the darkness and the isolation within himself, alone, isolated, and ungrounded. That is what happens when our gifts do not bring us back into life, and they negate the promise of who we are. That's what Hancock has to find in the movie. He has to find that balance, that very delicate balance that I think all of us need to find in this life, that arts. It's not as if we could say, okay, we truly have it 50-50 and we can stop right there. It's always shifting under our feet, but it is the work that we are called to do, to find that balance between holding on and letting go. It is the paradox, as T.S. Eliot wrote prayerfully to the God of his understanding years ago, teach us paradoxically to care and not to care. Teach us to care and not to care. Now, rationally, logically, that makes no sense at all. You either care or you don't care. But that is one of the promises of a true and rich and deep, fulfilling spiritual life. is That we can care and not care. We can live fruitfully in this paradox. That we can love. We can be loving without clutching and needing to hold too tight. And we can differentiate. We can have distance without being indifferent. That is so difficult for all of us. For my spiritual practice, the practice of recovery and sobriety, I know these words, but they extend far beyond that community. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That is a call to all of us. The wisdom to know the difference, that's not easy to tell at all. In our listening to, uh, listening to our lives class, our Wellsprings 2.0, we spend some time in the week that we focus on suffering, and we do that in like the sixth or seventh week, because we started with that, I'd have no people signing up for that class. By the time we get there, what we do is we try and understand, try and investigate, as the Dalai Lama says, try and have an understanding of what are the things in our sufferings that we can just accept and deal with just as facts. And one of the things that we can change as well, too, we recognize that sometimes shift from category to category and sometimes they straddle the line 51 percent to 49 percent. But we know when we do this work that what will be granted us is ultimately the wisdom to know the difference, to have that deeper resiliency that can tell us when we're holding on too tight or we're pushing back too much. One of our core convictions here at Wellsprings is very much about this. We believe that a growing, honest, spiritual life fills our God-shaped holes and our deepest yearnings. Efforts to fill these holes with materialism, unhealthy relationships, and substance abuse lead to despair and to loneliness. It's the story of Hancock right there. Now, when we talk about the God-shaped hole... Not talking about some image of God that comes down and sort of just magically, like a bird flying into existence, sort of swoops in and takes away your pain, or God on a big white horse saying, "I'm here to rescue you." The God-shaped hole that we're talking about is something different. It is recognizing that whatever we choose to call it, whatever we choose to name it, there is a deeper grounding for each and every one of our lives. It is bigger or deeper or higher. The metaphor, the spatial metaphor that I like is wider. When we pretend that we are invulnerable, when we pull ourselves away from life, it becomes something very narrow. Think about it when you're at your most fearful, at your most stingy. Mm, You know, tight. So I like that image of wider, going from this to this. Sharon Salzberg tells the kind of story that when she, years ago, in her wonderful book, Faith, Tells the story about realizing and learning the Buddha story for the first time. And what it gave her was an opportunity to tell a different story about her life. No longer a story of a child from a broken family with diseased parents. But a story about learning from suffering. Learning from struggle. And to realize our innate original goodness. Years ago I read a story. A very brief one about a Jewish woman who was for many years completely alienated from her tradition. And she had been remarkably successful, remarkably materially and professionally and educationally successful. But there was that God-shaped hole inside of her. And she returned to her Jewish origins, returned to the type of Judaism that really does structure our everyday lives. And I remember what she said. She said, I returned because it tells me what to do with my freedom. Now, she was making the choice. It wasn't made for her, but it shaped her life. It is through this relationship with something more than just ourselves. The paradox is realized that we come to know ourselves ever more deeply than we would if we just said, I'm out there on my own. Of course, it takes time to establish that relationship. It takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of work. And the temptation for all of us is to cut corners. To cut corners. To rest that longing for deep fulfillment and elation and that high, to rest it in the drink or in the drug. Or to rest that desire for real power and real empowerment in that hope for the new job that when we get, our status will be guaranteed. Or to rest that yearning for real beauty, real truth, real shining in that new purchase or that new haircut or that new body. Now, none of these things, well, except for me, the drink, none of these things is awful in and of themselves. But you know what? Some of these things can just be shiny new toys that can distract us and ultimately will disappoint us because they can keep us from the deeper work to which we all are called when we stop short of finding that truly liberating freedom. Hancock beautifully illustrates, unbelievably or not, St. Augustine. St. Augustine talked about two very different kinds of freedom that there are in life. In the Latin, they are liberum arbitrium. And on the other hand, libertas. The first one, arbitrary freedom. You can have coffee, you can have tea, big whoop, who cares? Hancock is free to squander. He is free to live his life with resentment. But the story of Hancock is him realizing that there's a different freedom to which he is called what Augustine called Libertas. And it is that place where our God-shaped holes are filled with God-shaped stuff. In our tradition, I think, as in so many ways, the person who most defined what it is to fill our God-shaped holes was Emerson. He said that each of us is called to have an original relationship with the universe Not a second hand or third hand or I heard of meaning by rumor kind of thing. Emerson said all of us are called to have an original relationship with the universe. What this feels like is that revelation is here right now. It's not capped. It's not over. That every day, every day we have, every day you have is another verse of scripture waiting to be written. Waiting to be written by your interaction with this universe that calls us all into being. And you call it into fuller being as well. It's like the ancient Hebrews. I love what they did. Ancient Hebrew has no vowels. No vowels whatsoever. Even God's name. That's why sometimes it's Yahweh. Sometimes it's Jehovah. God's name has no vowels. I like that sense that we are the vowels. Our life is putting meaning and creating meaning in the universe. And when we do this, our own life resonates with the sound, the deep sounding of who we are. This kind of knowledge comes about through the deepest kind of relationships that we can have. The kinds of relationships that Wellsprings exists for. We talk about the 12 steps. Now, they apply, by the way, much more to alcohol. And I love the fact that they are steps, not theories, not thoughts. Steps, relationships happen step by step by step, one day at a time. Revelation does not happen without incarnation. And incarnation is not something that's just about Jesus. Incarnation is going on right here, right now. Nothing real happens without that deep relationship with life. Things don't happen and wisdom does not happen nowhere. It happens somewhere. At the end of the movie, Hancock ultimately realizes that he is not alone. Even at the end, if you've seen it, you know, he also has to let go. He knows who he is. So for the first time in his life, he is able to do what he is called to do with joy. And at the same time, he is also able to say goodbye to someone who means so much to him. See, because he has been seized by this deep, what they call an existential awareness This deep sense that he belongs to life and he's discovered his true nature. And in that, he is able in his superhero status to finally give his heart away because it never was his own heart to begin with. This is what we mean by filling that God-shaped hole with that original relationship with the universe. It's like the cans say, if you ever read the top of them, I think they still say this, the redemption value, five cents. With the number of states, the can does its job. It is empty, and then it is full. It is empty, and then it is full again. Its job is to be empty, and then full, and then empty, and then full. All the time being returned to its source so it can be filled back up again, so it can send itself back into life and give out what it's supposed to give out. That's who we are when we operate at our best in this life. Now, if we think that all that we are is only the product of our own lives and our own efforts, then I can guarantee you we will be stingy. We will be stingy because we will say we individually are the only makers of value in life and so if I let my value go, it will disappear and I might disappear as well too. But if we have that experience and cultivate that experience and work with that experience of every day in sometimes very small ways, maintaining that original relationship with the universe, then we will know that we are never alone. We will recognize that we individually are not the only ones who make value. And the value of our lives is rested and nested in a much bigger container than just ourselves alone. If we return to that original relationship with the universe every day, well, then we exist in the promise of what that relationship can give us. We will live fully, and we will love generously and courageously, even when it is hard. And we will inhabit our lives with the fullness of being whose value is finally without measure and without name, and whose gift, whose very gift, is the knowledge of our truest nature. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Source of life, that is all the name that we need. Perhaps we're here today with some pain or sorrow. We're saying, eh, we're just indifferent. Or perhaps we're here today with some great cusp of being that we sit upon waiting to be realized. Wherever we are this day, may we be grounded firmly in this good earth of our existence. May we know that the openness of that original relationship with you, with this life, it is always here. The calling of our true nature beckons us and welcomes us home. So let's pray for hands and pray for hearts capable, capable of doing this work of staying true to the stuff that really fills up our lives and not being distracted by that which does not. May we be here together as one community, supporting each other, nurturing each other, recognizing that none of us does this work alone. And that is the final blessing upon which all of our lives rest. Amen.